Good morning. This morning's uh, scripture reading is from uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Trials and and temptations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed in the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances should take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the, sun, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rip. Pray with me if you would. Oh, gracious God and most merciful Father, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. So assist us, help us with your spirit. Write your word in our hearts. Comfort us, reform us, transform us. Renew us according to your image. Build us up into the perfect building of Christ. Increase in us all the heavenly virtues and do this for your sake. Amen. Uh, So I read an article this week in, uh, of all places, a Jesuit journal. There's Jesuit magazine, uh, and it was a theological reflection on, uh, I don't know if you you all have followed the news, uh, AOC's dress at the Met Gala last weekend. Anybody follow that? Uh, she wore this very controversial dress, and uh, and I bet you never you never expected that somebody that a Jesuit of all people could reflect theologically about a controversial dress at a big gala, but they did, and uh, and it was it's a great article, it's brilliant. The author Molly Cahill, uh, in the article, one of the things she does is quotes Caesar Cruz. Caesar Cruz is a professor at Harvard, uh, and he said this about art. This line jumped off the page to me: Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Good art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And immediately when I read that, I thought, Jesus does that. That makes perfect sense if you think about it, because good art, even if it's not explicitly Christian in its subject, good art points us to truth and beauty and goodness. These are kind of the three transcendental virtues. And God, we believe, is the source of truth and beauty and goodness. So in some sense, all good art points us to God. Therefore, if good art 
disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed, it's because God does the same thing. It makes perfect sense. This morning, we're continuing, we're starting this, we're, we're doing this slow, deliberate walk through the New Testament book of James. And James is all about Christian wisdom and maturity. What does it look like to be a wise and a mature Christian? And so far, he's taught us that suffering well produces perseverance, and perseverance leads to maturity. So very counterintuitively, the path to maturity runs through suffering well. Last week, we saw the role of wisdom in that, and realizing that the only way we can, we can accomplish that or we can be taken down that path is by asking God for wisdom. This morning, we're going to get a little more provocative. Really, James is going to get a little more provocative. James is very blunt. And if you've been reading through James with us, especially if you've gotten to chapters 2 and beyond, you've seen James doesn't, James doesn't hold any punches back. He just comes right into it. And this morning, we're really going to get a taste of that. It's going to make us uncomfortable, I hope. Why? Well, it's uncomfortable because James is going to ta- start talking about money this morning, and nothing makes us as uncomfortable, or very few things, as when we talk about money. People get, they just get touchy, especially when you talk about their money. So we're going to let ourselves be provoked. I hope you will let yourself be provoked. Why? Because James is all about maturity and wisdom. What does it mean to be a mature and wise Christian? What does it mean to grow? And we all know you never grow if you don't allow yourself to be challenged. Just like a good athlete. A good athlete doesn't become a good athlete by by just taking it easy during practice. The more uncomfortable they make themselves, the better an athlete they become. So I hope you will let yourself be challenged this morning. You don't have to, but if you choose to forego that, then you choose to forego growth. It's up to you. This morning, we're going to see how James comforts the disturbed. He's kind of been doing that already, but we're going to recap that, and then we're going to see how he disturbs the comfortable. Let's just look in the order that James presents them. And we're really focusing on verses 9 through 11 here. Look at how he starts with verse 9. The brother or sister in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. I don't need to tell you that this is a surprising reversal. However you want to interpret humble circumstances, and you could really interpret it a lot of ways, maybe it means somebody is poor, Maybe it means somebody just doesn't have any, like a certain social standing, they're from the wrong family or they're from the wrong side of town. Maybe it means they're chronically sick. It could mean any, any number of things. However you want to interpret humble circumstances, you don't expect somebody to tell them, hey, take pride in your high position. They're thinking, I don't have a high position. What is there to take pride in? What does James mean by this? Let's think back again. This is a little bit of a recap, but in verses 2 through 4, what does he say? He says, Consider it joy, joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may become mature and complete. The logical train here, but it's pretty easy to follow. If you're humble, if you're in a humble position, It basically means you're suffering. But the person who suffers develops perseverance. And the person who perseveres wisely becomes mature. Which means that very often, 
people in the humblest of circumstances, the poor, the kind of the, the down and out, the people from the wrong area of town, even the chronically ill, are the people who have a more mature faith than people who haven't suffered. I see this quite a bit. As I come across people, the people I know who are, who are in some ways the, in the most humble circumstances, the poorest, whether it's wealth or whether it's poor in spirit, however you want to interpret that, often have a much more robust faith. Why? Because they've suffered more. And suffering develops perseverance, and perseverance develops maturity. Last week, we spent a little bit of time thinking about wisdom. We saw that God's wisdom looks downright foolish to the world around us. So for instance, the world says, get as much as you can. But God's wisdom says, give as much as you can. The world preaches a gospel of self-preservation, but the gospel, God preaches a gospel, Jesus preaches a gospel of self-sacrifice. You see, the world, the world preaches what a friend of mine calls radical self-determinism. Self-determinism, that means I get to define myself. I get to define who I am. I get to define my purpose in life. I get to decide what is good and right. I get to set the standards. I, I, I. But God says, I made you. You didn't make yourself. You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. You see, the wisdom of God very bluntly contradicts the wisdom of the world. But somebody who's poor, like, they just get that. They don't have a choice. Someone who's wealthy has a much harder time accepting those things. So what does James mean? If, if you are among those, those in humble circumstances, when he says, take pride in your high position, what does he mean by that? He means God is using this and working in you to develop character and maturity and resilience that is incomparable. God comforts the disturbed, you see? That's kind of a recap of where he's been. But James uses that as a springboard to say not only does he comfort the disturbs, now, this is the fun part, now he disturbs the comfortable. Now he disturbs, the, and he does it by turning the tables. Here, James is talking specifically to people who are wealthy. Now he could have used a number of other examples. He could have talked about people who are very pot, who are socially popular. He could have talked about people who are, who are well-employed, who have good jobs, who are respected, any number of, of things, however we accomplish or achieve or get to comfort. But he chooses wealth, and so that's what we're going to stick with. And there's this, there's this not quite an irony, but kind of, that people who are comfortable are not very likely to listen to James for at least two reasons. First, nobody thinks they're wealthy. Nobody thinks they're wealthy. In fact, I bet if I were to ask you, are you wealthy, you would probably say no. And if you didn't say, well, flat out no, you would say, well, I'm, what, I'm, I'm comfortable. Nobody thinks they're rich. Nobody. Why? Well, probably because you could always have more, and you know you could, and you always want more, and you always think, well, if I were rich, then I would have that thing, but, but I don't have that, so I must not be rich. And besides, you probably know somebody, at least one person, maybe many people, who have a lot more than you do, and I'm not as wealthy as they are, so surely I'm not rich. See, most people don't think they're wealthy, so they kind of let this skim off the surface. And then secondly, people who are wealthy, whether they're aware of it or not, they figure, well, I got to where I am. Even if I just define it as I'm comfortable, well, I got, I got here myself. I figured it out. So why do I need more advice to tell me to do something I've already figured out myself? 
The people who most need to hear God's message are the people who are least likely to listen. So let me, let me challenge you here. By the standards that James is talking about, let's put some, some meat on these bones. This is a little hard to do one-to-one because in ancient cultures, you didn't actually have a middle class. Probably about 90% of people lived below what would have been the poverty line then. But if you are middle class and or above, James is talking to you when he's talking to the wealthy. If you have all your needs met, if you're not wondering where your next meal is coming from, maybe even more poignantly, if you have a good retirement plan and you have a plan to retire and retire comfortably or if you are retired comfortably, James is talking to you. Don't miss this. Now let me be very clear. James does not say it is wrong to be wealthy. James does not say it is a sin to be wealthy. Okay, so don't hear that. Here's what he does say. I'm just going to read verses 10 and 11 to you again. The one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the plant. We got a taste of that scorching heat in August, didn't we? It rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Now, James is probably referencing Isaiah 40 here. In Isaiah 40, God says, All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. He's probably quoting from Isaiah 40. And we also know that Peter, at least Peter, and maybe some other New Testament authors quote from Isaiah 40 as well, which tells us that for early Christians, there was something about that section of Isaiah 40 that was critical to understanding their faith. What is that thing? It's exactly what James is saying here. To put it very bluntly, and James is blunt, you won't last you won't last. Like you're, let's be even more blunt. You're going to die someday. Just like the wildflower. You think, Chris, that's, that's heavy. Yep. <laughs> yeah. What is God doing? He's disturbing the comfortable. Why? Why would God do this? At least one reason I can think of the most obvious is this, that comfort so effortlessly distracts us from God. And it is sinister and it is subtle. It will draw your gaze. Comfort and specifically wealth, financial wealth, will draw your gaze away from God so subtly that you won't even notice it's happening. It's just like, you know, the story of the frog that's in the pot of water that turns to boil and the frog doesn't. It's just like that if you know, if you know that story. The danger of wealth is this. You can literally, if you're wealthy, you can buy your way out of discomfort. And it arrives in two days with free shipping. You can pay someone to give you great legal and financial advice and protect the wealth that you've worked so hard to build. You can afford better health care. You can afford health care at all. You can send your kids to private schools. Or you can afford to live in the towns with the good public schools. 
You can trade in your car every few years without having to worry about it breaking down. There's so many examples. And hear me loud and clear. These are not bad things. Remember, James is not saying that wealth is bad. He's saying it's dangerous. So be very clear-eyed about the dangers. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But it's so easy to think that life becomes about each of those things. I just need a little more, I just need a little more, and I just need a little more. Think about it this way. In the past two weeks, James has said that wisdom and maturity and suffering well, which is counterintuitive, those three things are so tightly interwoven that it's impossible to unravel one without unraveling them all. Now, if James is right, you have to believe what James is saying. If you don't buy into it, then you're not going to you're not going to track with us. But if James is right, and if suffering well really does lead to wisdom and maturity, and if you can buy your way out of suffering, then you are depriving yourself of what? Of wisdom and maturity. You see? You are depriving yourself of the most important thing you could possibly gain in this world. To be very blunt, if your life revolves around comfort, you will never become a very wise or mature Christian. You see, God, what is God doing? He's comforting the disturbed and he's disturbing the comfortable. This is incredibly countercultural. Incredibly countercultural. Because remember, the world says avoid suffering at all costs. And I get it, like I'm there, I try to avoid suffering too. That's just human nature. But God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and he chooses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. In Matthew 6, Jesus himself puts it this way, point blank. He says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Can't do it. So we have to ask two questions. If, if wealth really is this dangerous, as dangerous as James is, is saying, we have to ask at least two questions. One, like how do I know whether wealth has this stranglehold on me or not? And number two, then what do I do about it? In other words, how do I diagnose this and then what's the prescription? First, let's look at the diagnosis. Again, let me reiterate. James does not say that wealth is wrong. Nowhere in the Bible actually does it say that wealth is wrong. The problem isn't with wealth or with money. It's with our desires. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 6. He says this, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I bet you've heard that last part before. Paul does not say that people who are rich fall into ruin. You notice what he said? He said people who want to get rich fall into ruin. He doesn't say money is the, I bet you've heard that misquoted. I bet you've heard it said money is the root of all evil. Never says that. What does Paul say? Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Love of money. You see the difference, right? It's not a question of what you have. It's a question of what you want. Which is sobering, by the way, because that means that somebody who's poor can be in just as much danger as somebody who's wealthy. You don't have to have money to want money. You don't have to have money to make your life revolve around wanting more. So if you fill in the blank, 
If I just had blank, then I'd be okay. How do you fill that in? If I just had blank, is it a dollar amount? Is it a raise? Is it a promotion? Is it a certain return on your investments? However you fill in that blank, you will make sacrifices and frankly compromises in every other aspect of life to get that, whatever that blank is. So how do you diagnose your desires? One, you got to be willing to get uncomfortable. (laughs) Two, I'd say that probably the best way is to ask God. When you're praying, when you're praying in the morning or when you're praying throughout the day, Do you dare ask God, God, show me what's in my heart. Show me what I really want. Fair warning, don't pray that unless you really mean it. Because he he might, and it might hurt. He may reveal an uncomfortable truth to you. But of course, if, if, if what you really want is God, or maybe you're not even sure, like, I don't even know my desires, but I, I don't know if I, I think I want God, or I, at least I want to want God more, then of course you'll endure that discomfort. You'll gladly endure it if it means you get more of him. You see? And of course, then you're on the path to true wisdom anyway. We have to diagnose our desires. Secondly, what do you do? James says you have to maintain a certain mindset. The one who is rich should what? Take pride in his low position because he will fade away like a wildflower. Or as God says in Genesis 3.19, we hear this at a lot of funerals, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. This is, this is sobering, I know. <laughs> Believe me. I've spent all week thinking about this. But take that seriously. Really. Meditate on it. Turn it over in your mind. Ask yourself, if life really is this fleeting, here today, gone tomorrow, what does that mean for how I earn and save and spend and give my money? And the answer kind of becomes self-evident. It's it's almost obvious. If life is temporary, then we treat our wealth as though it's temporary. Because it is. Because it is. There's that old saying, nobody ever saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Treat your comforts in this life as though they're temporary because they're temporary. And when that happens, you'll find that you start to loosen your white-knuckled grip on your checkbook, and you'll find that you start giving more readily, more freely, more generously. Maintain a certain mindset, James says. And then I would add, and we're going to get to this in just a minute, practice sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. In other words, don't just give like a little scrap here and there whenever it's convenient or whatever just happens to be laying around. Practice generosity in a way that you feel it in a way that actually hurts, that you might have to give up something good, something else that you want in order to be more generous. Why? Because God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. See, world, the, the world's mindset it says be generous well, to a point. The, the world says the question to ask is, okay, how much do I have to give? Like, what's the minimum? It's like... Uh, when I was in college once, I, I took a class pass-fail, and so you had to get at least a certain grade and, and then pass. And I remember going to my professor and saying, like, where do I stand and what do I have to get on the final exam to pass? The world asks, what's the minimum I can give and still pass? 
What does that say about your heart? Where's your heart in that? Godly wisdom asks, how much can I give? Not how much should I give, how much can I give? And how can I give more and more and more? Why? Because Christ has already given everything for me. Because everything is already mine in him. This isn't natural. Boy, it's, it's, <laughs> it grates against every one of our human desires, I know. But remember, the wisdom of God is foolishness in this world. It won't happen on its own. You have to plan for it. You have to be very, very intentional. Let me just give you just a a window. Um, I'll share share Jamie's and my approach, not because it's the right approach and not because you should do what we do. You probably shouldn't, but um, this this is how we think about it. Maybe it's helpful. Every year since we've been married, we sit down and we plan our budget for the coming year and we include all of our giving, our tithe and what we give to missionaries and charities and other things in our budgets. We budget for it. It's, it's in our budget. And every year, just to try to keep our love of money in check and to try to keep this from running away from us, every year we've increased the percentage of our income that we've given just, just by a little bit. Like it could be just half a percent. But if every year we can say, well, let's just give a little bit more, can we just stretch ourselves a little bit more? We hope that God uses things like that to keep our hearts focused on him and not our stuff. The way she put it once that was so helpful to me was she said, if we could have more stuff and less God, or if we could have more God and less stuff, I guess I would choose more God and less stuff. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 6. He says, command those who are rich in this present world, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Don't miss that last part. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. One commentator, one of my favorite commentators, Alec Motyer, um, Irish theologian, wrote this. He said, those who worship wealth perish, will die with their God. It's not an exaggeration to say that this is a life and death matter. Those who worship wealth will die with their God. And it hit me as I was reading that. Every God, whatever God you choose to worship, and we all choose to worship some God. Even an atheist worships some God. It might be themselves. It might be their own sense of identity. It could be whatever. We all worship something. There's no getting around it. And every single God you choose to worship, whatever that is, will demand that you die for it. It will kill you. That includes Jesus, by the way. But as I was thinking about this, I realized three key differences between Jesus and every other God. Three very, very important differences. Number one, every other God lies to you. Let's just take wealth again as an example because we've been thinking about it. Every other God says, find me and you'll have life. You'll live and you'll live good. They have nothing to say about how they will double-cross you and kill you. But they will. 
If wealth is your God, you will die to everything else just to get it. And you'll never, you'll always want more. It will kill you. Jesus is the only God who is honest, who actually says right at the outset, following me means a measure of death. What does Jesus say in Luke 9? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And in ancient Rome, you don't take up your cross unless you're about to be crucified on your cross. Follow me, Jesus says, which involves a measure of death, a certain death. But at least Jesus is honest. No other God is. Every other God tries to sell you a false bill of goods, and it never lives up to the promise. Jesus is the only one who's honest. And says, you're going to have to give up your bent towards self-preservation and you're going to have to embrace radical self-sacrifice. But it doesn't end there. Second key difference, I'm indebted to uh, Pastor Tim Keller for this. Every other God says, die for me. Jesus is the only God who says, I died for you. Every other God says, you need to sacrifice everything and following me will cost you your life. Finding me will kill you if you can find me. Jesus is the only God who says, you know what, you can actually never find me on your own. But I will give my life to find you. That's a major difference. Third key difference, Jesus is the only God who can legitimately say, after you die with me, I will raise you to life forever. It's the only one. Everything else will kill you and just leave you in the ground six feet under. But in Romans 6, Paul says this, we are united with Christ in his death. There is a measure of death and self-sacrifice and we will be united with him in his resurrection. Jesus is the only God who can legitimately promise you, follow me. Yes, you will have to die to yourself, but if you do, you will be rewarded with a a true and large and bursting with the fullness of heaven life. Nobody else can give that to you because no other God has given himself for you like that. You see the difference? Do you see the difference? You, You can try to avoid death at all costs. And let me know how it goes. You can try. You'll still end up dead. One way or another. What does James say? The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant. That's a good image. But if you embrace death, namely with Christ, if you embrace death with Christ, if you put to death your anemic attempts attempts to preserve your life, including how you see your riches and your comfort, if you can crucify your own notions of what is wise and embrace Jesus' totally self-sacrificial life, if you embrace that death, you will find eternal life. It's the only way. That, James says, is what true wisdom and true maturity look like. Let's pray. Lord, make us wise. We need you to make us wise because we know that our <laughs> on our own, when we try to be wise on our own, we're led so far astray. It never works. It never lasts. It never pans out. We just end up hurting ourselves, hurting others, hurting the world. But you came to heal the world. Even though the world is, is, is 
seemingly irreparably broken, you stepped into the brokenness, into the mess, and said, no, I, I will make it right, even if it cost me my life. Transform us, O oh Lord, with the reality of Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again. Would you fill us with his spirit and with his wisdom so that we might become wise and mature We know that might mean that we look foolish to a watching world. So be it. In fact, it might be appropriate to ask that you make us look that way so that a watching world might take notice and might get a taste of how sweet, how sweet it is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Make us your own. Make us more like Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.